Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Pat Cummins. I'm Josh Hazelwood. I'm Elizabeth Kowaja. I'm Mitch Marsh. I'm Mitch Stark, and you're listening to The Unplayable Podcast. This is The Unplayable Podcast. On today's episode, we're going to preview Australia's World Cup squad with cricket.com.au reporter Lewis Cameron and wind back the clock to the 1999 World Cup with our senior writer Andrew Ramsey who covered the tournament live in England. So let's get straight into it with Louis Cameron who joins us from Melbourne today. Lou, I'm going to put you on the spot straight up. Who is in your 15-man squad to go to the World Cup? Well, straight away, Sam. No, uh, no opening, uh, opening remarks. No, no throwdowns. Pleasure to be on the podcast. No, no throwdowns. No half volleys, mate. I'm giving you a, a tough one, just outside off stump. Let's hear it. All right, my World Cup 15 is Aaron Finch and Usman Khawaja are opening, um, and that's just about the only decision over the actual 11 that I've made. Okay. Um, so I think they've just been too good uh, of this last two series in or the back half of the India series and then the, um, the five-game series against Pakistan. Yep. So they're opening. Um, so I'm reading from the top. Um, so after Finch and Kawaja, I've got Warner, Smith and Sean Marsh all kind of fighting for two spots. Mm-hmm. So um, I reckon Warner's good enough to bat at three or good enough to kind of adapt to bat at three. Um, and Smith and Shaw Marsh, that's a, that's a really tough call. So I've got to pick two of those three closer to the date, so I'm putting that off. Right. Um, then I've got Glenn Maxwell, Marcus Stoinis, they're locks. They've been fantastic. Through the middle, I think they're six and seven. Sorry, five and six um, in my team. I've picked Alex Carey as my keeper, and I've got Peter Hanscom as a backup. So um, Hanscom at the moment is probably uh, one of the two batters who's going to miss out on the eleven. The first pick eleven, yep. Um, and Kerry's my keeper. Uh, then I'm picking Zampa and Lyon. I think um, the way they bowled over these last two series, I think it. Uh, you need two spinners in the modern game. Uh, you need to at least have the option of, of having a couple. And um, who knows if it, you know you come come up against a team with lots of left-handers, maybe Lyon plays instead of Zampa. But um, for now, I've got Zampa um, in there as my lock. Um, and then my four fast bowlers are Pat Cummins. Mitch Stark, Josh Hayeswood, and pending fitness, Jai Richardson. Um, if he doesn't get through uh, in time, I've got his namesake, Kane Richardson. But uh, okay. I'm banking on Jai being fit. Okay, yes. Yeah. So I think the last we heard from Jai was at the Laurie Saul Medal Dinner uh, awards night over there in Perth, and he said he's still hopeful of pushing case for World Cup selection. I don't know if he's bold yet. He's not going to have surgery, so... His um his fitness is still fairly unknown, but you'd think he'd be racing against the clock to get into this World Cup squad, and he's not going to have pretty much any bowling since that second one day in Sharjah to go off. But he's been hitting, well, he hit the ground running in international cricket this summer, so we all know what he can do. 
depending mm. how strong that shoulder is going to be. Okay, it's an impressive squad. Not too many boulders there, Louis. Uh, my squad, very similar. I think we've only got two differences. Uh, I'm going with Finch. This is in sort of no particular order, but kind of is. Finch, Warner, Kawaja, Smith, Stoinis, Maxwell. Cummins, mm-hmm. Stark, Zampa, Hazelwood, Lyon, Hanscom, and Sean Marsh. Now, my two differences to you are Coulter Nile. I've got Coults in there uh, over Jai Richardson because I just don't know if he's going to be fit. So, I mean, it's a coin flip between those two. But right now, Coulter Nile's fit and Jai Richardson's, Richardson isn't. So, I'm taking Coulter Nile. Uh, Friend of the podcast. He'll be devastated. I know, don't... Well, uh, you know... He'll be listening. He'll be the first to download it. <clears throat> Jeepers. Well, you know, prove your fitness. <laughs> prove me wrong. Prove me wrong. Well, I, I didn't pick him either, so... Um, but he is in there if, if Jai isn't fit, so... Who's that? That's Kane Richardson. Kane. Oh, Kane. Yeah, well, um, a tough one, but I can only fit one Richardson in the squad if they're all fit, so... And Richardson, sure. the other one's not even in there, so... Um, so, I have Coulton Isle in there. There's at least three members of the new Big Four, as they like to call themselves. So if you can get three quarters of the Big Four in there, that's okay. And <laughs> and the other change was, and this is radical, and I'm only doing it because uh, I've just got a feeling that uh, Alex Carey hasn't secured his spot. So I'm going with the Tasmanian captain, Matthew Wade, to come in there, who's had an incredible summer, scored runs, in every format against every team, batting in pretty much every position, uh, and I think maybe for a one-off tournament, get him in there. What it does do if they do pick Wade, it throws up all kinds of other selection issues for the Ashes because Wade's red ball form has arguably been better than his white ball form, so he probably should get in there if there's a reserve keeper for the Ashes, but who knows? So I just I like, I just like Wade's explosiveness coming in at number seven. Kerry's done an amazing job sticking with the tail, building those totals, being a real foil for the heavy hitters at the back end. Um, but I reckon if you've got Wade who can nurdle and get singles as well, and you have him in there, I think their keeping's about the same. So it's a, that's another 50-50. Yeah, but that's the mm-hmm. uh, that's the way I'm going. Um, so I th- well, we've got 13 the same. I think there's only a couple of spots really that are in contention. What uh, Trevor Holmes said in India, there are 19 names. And that would have been the mm-hmm. 15 over there plus the likes of Smith and Warner. Mitchell Stark, who um, is coming back from a peck injury, and uh, maybe Hazelwood as well, who's just started bowling as well. So that's 19. And, of course, there are guys like Jason Berendorf, who's performed very well, but probably only gets in the team if Mitchell Stark is out, both being left armers. Uh, you've also got guys like Darcy Short, Ashton Turner, uh, you know, Jai Richardson, we've mentioned him. So there are a couple of guys that might not be in the frame. Is there anyone else we're missing, Lou? Yeah, I've, I've got I've got one, and I think it, it might um, precipitate one of your questions to come. But I, the one I found hard to leave out, apart from Kane Richardson, who I think is a really good death bowler, but I thought Mitch Marsh um, in that squad could add a real a real different dimension. I had a look back through today um, some of the or the three uh, World Cup winning squads the last three squads Australia picked to win the World Cups in 2015, 2003 and 99, they all had multiple seam bowling all-rounders in there. So 2015, you had Mitch Marsh, Shane Watson and James Faulkner, whether you want to call him a specialist bowler or, or an all-rounder, but yep. um, that's in addition to Maxwell. Then 2003, you had Andrew Simons. Um, I know he's not a seam bowling all-rounder, but he, 
Oh, well, he, he was, wasn't he? He could have. Yeah, yeah. Austrian. yeah. So you had that option. You had Shane Watson, and he got replaced by Ian Harvey in the tournament. And going further back, you had uh, Tom Moody and Shane Lee in that squad uh, in 99. Uh, and and Brendan Julian. Who, and, yeah, and yeah. Damien and Fleming will call himself an all-rounder as well. Yeah, okay, they're not pushing it a little okay. bit. But, um, yeah, you had you had well, Steve Wall was in there and yeah. uh, Damien Martin. Those guys could bowl. More guys could bowl back then, but that's probably a different podcast. But my point is, I guess, that um, only Stoinis as a seam bowling all-rounder in this squad um, you know, probably leaves Australia a little light. Yes, good point. I guess what they're perhaps relying on is the batting abilities of Cummins, Stark, Coulton Isle, if you get to him, because they, on their day, are genuine all-rounders as well. I mean, Cummins proven himself to be very effective with mm. the bat this summer, and he's pulled off, oh, he was integral in that win over there in India, that, in that first T20, where they got 14 off the final over. Him and Jai Richardson are both pretty handy, and we all know how, how hard and how far Coulton Isle can hit the ball. Uh, and that's not to say that Adam Zamper and Nathan Lyon aren't, uh, aren't too shabby with the bat either, but they're probably not quite in the class of Mitchell Marsh, let's be fair. But um, that is a good point. No, exactly. Steinus is the only seam bowling all-rounder, so if something does happen to him, I guess you've got to think, when they're planning this, do they go, right, um, do the selectors go, hope for the best, plan for the worst, or they go, right, we're going to only pick one keeper. We're all only going to pick um, one seam bowling all-rounder. We're only going to pick one spinning all-rounder. Do they try and cover all the bases? It's very difficult in a 15-man squad. If you went for an Ashes series, you can pretty much double up on everything because the squad can be however big you want it. But to only pick 15 players, that's the challenge of it, isn't it? It's a really good point. And, I mean, thinking about uh, the keeping spot as well in that debate. So, um, you know, your bombshell there of, of Matty Wade potentially being around the mark or Alex Carey not being in there. That I mean, if you're going to pick someone from left field, um, not that Matt Wade's from left field necessarily. He's got a really good record. He's been fantastic in domestic cricket, but he hasn't played in the one-day team for quite a while. Yeah. Can you can you afford to only pick one keeper in, in that regard? So, I mean, Hanscom is kind of the one who I think you know might just slip in there just because he's um, just because he's versatile. He can play as a top order bat, he can bat in the top four, but he could, could also bat at seven and be a specialist keeper. So, um, it, it seems like a pretty uh, pretty settled. Um, settled squad kind of coming in and, and the wins they've had but yeah there are quite a few questions yeah and Hanscom uh, is in good form too he could have made a one day hundred he played really well in the mm-hmm. jail to cover the start of the the summer so it's not like they're picking a guy who's out of nick so he's good um, Sean Marsh is another one that even he said that he's not really sure about um, whether he'll go with Smith and Warner coming back in but it's so easy to judge recent form, but in the past 12 months, he's got four 1-800s. He got two of them over there in England in that 5-0 bilateral thump, thumping against England. Um, he's got experience. I always kind of think, uh, both our squads, we've gone with the two spinners. Do they do they think it's going to spin a lot over there, and do they maybe pick an extra quick? Do they take five fast bowlers and two spinners? That's a lot of bowlers. Or do they go with maybe they pick a seam bowling around instead of someone like Sean Marsh? Imagine if it was Mitch Marsh in for brothers Sean. It'd be like a Steve Waugh, Mark Waugh scenario. Um, but that way you've got Hanscom and Marsh as the two backup batters plus a backup keeper, lines your backup spinner. And then mm-hmm. as it stands, it'll either be Jai Richardson or Hazelwood or one of those guys that'll make up the reserve fast bowling spot. So um, that's very juicy. We talked about the top order before. Now you've gone with Finch and Kawaja which is um, 
well, it's, it's I think statistically, Lou, and you might have exclusively revealed this, that it's one of the greatest, if not the greatest, one-day opening partnerships for Australia. It is. It's the greatest, yeah, greatest 50-over <laughs> partnership in Australia's history and one of the best of all time. I mean, it's only a reasonably small sample size. I think they, they opened a couple of times before they rejoined um, at the top of the order uh, for the Ind- start of the India series, mm. the away India series. Um, I just think like I just think that bond is so important, um, and you just I think Australia they're going to be I mean if all goes to plan they're going to be reintroducing David Warner, Steve Smith, probably Mitchell Stark, and maybe Josh Hazelwood. That's four really important players into the team for that first game. If you assume all um, all four of those play, I just reckon the stability of knowing. Um, you've got a really good top order partnership. I reckon that's really important. Um, plus, I think Warner, um, you know, c- considering he hasn't been out of the side, he's going to have to adjust anyway. Why not? Um, maybe give him a crack at three. Or, um, but yeah, it is a really tough call. I think Warner's one of the one of the greatest um, one day batsmen Australia have ever had. But uh, the stats don't lie, Sam. The stats don't lie. Which is why I'm going to throw you this one, Lou, because if you're saying that you can put Warner at three, how's this for some numbers? We all assume that Steve Smith will go at number four, but Smith averages 52.5 batting at three. He's got seven one-day hundreds there. He's got close to 2,500 runs. His record at number four, only 17 innings there, but uh, just the 100 averages 35.6. So maybe you've got to think that Steve Smith has to bat at three. So then do you shuffle Warner down to four? That's interesting, yeah. And some might say that Warner, given his probably more attacking from the get-go. Uh, maybe, yeah, maybe he could be more flexible at four. You could talk me into it. Um, but if you do that, um, I mean, so are you, if you're picking your 11 now, have you got, are you sliding Kawadra down? Well, I'm going to go against what I just said, that I'm going to put Kawadra at three. Because <laughs> I, I know you were saying okay, that yeah. statistically, Finch, and Kawaja are the best ever, but Finch and Warner's combination is also very, very, very good. Um, and mm, I mean, they, were, they were the one; they were the opening partnership for the 2015 World Cup win. So they've done it. They've done it in the big tournament. So I'm going to go those two. I still think Kawaja. I mean, three, three is only a different kettle of fish when the openers get off to a good start. Otherwise, they could be out there in the first over and they're opening anyway. So. You know what does that mean? Um, and maybe that's why Smith does average higher batting at three because he gets out there earlier and earlier, and um, and he takes on the newer ball with the field up, or he comes in with a team well mm. set and he can just go about his business and then cash in later on. So it is a pivotal position, but there are a number of guys there that can fill that role. And of course, Sean Marsh got his two hundreds in England batting at three as well, so he's a ready made first drop um, as well. So. Lots of options in the top order. That's going to be one of the real tricky parts for the selectors. Not only picking the 15, but then picking the 11 out of that 15, leaving those four guys out can be really tough. Um, yeah. We both think that Stoinis and Maxwell are going to be in the middle order there. Which way uh, they bat or what order they bat. Um, I think with Stoinis taking his time a little bit more at the start of the innings, I'd prefer to see him in with more balls to go and then have Maxwell who can tee off from ball one, who I think his best position in the team now is to play like a T- T20 innings. Hopefully he comes out there with 30 overs gone, Australia, what, I don't know, three or four or two for 200 or something like that, 
going pretty well and then you come out there and just go all guns blazing. But Maxwell sort of defined his role now as that guy that's finishing the innings probably more in the first innings than in the second innings. Yeah, 100%. I remember reading, um, as a kid, reading Michael Bevan's book and he said that the future of one-day cricket was you'll have guys who... Um, they won't have batting positions, they'll have over positions. So you want, um, say, you're Steve Smith, you want him to come in between overs 10 and 20. Um, and then someone like Glenn Maxwell, you want him to come in between overs 30 and 35 or, or 30 and 40. And I think that's probably the way it's going. You saw the way they used uh, Maxwell in the UAE. I think uh, there was one game, I can't remember if it was the third or fourth ODI, it was after a really big Finch and Kawaja partnership. Um, and the first week it didn't fall to maybe over 28 or 30. Um, and he came in at three. So, yeah. I mean, Australia could do that during the during the World Cup, couldn't they? Yeah, absolutely. And he was fairly versatile as captain with the Stars as well, shifting around the order. So, that's probably not yeah. against how he goes. Uh, the rest, I think, pretty much takes care of itself depending on the conditions, whether they go with uh, the two quicks and two spinners. Um, Lyon hasn't taken a whole lot of wickets since coming back into the team this year, but... He's been fairly economical. He's going for the, for less than uh, five runs per over, which is pretty good going these days. And Zampa is a genuine wicket-taking threat. So while he might not have the wickets line, I reckon he's creating pressure, which is providing opportunities for Zampa down the other end. It's that, um, and you would know, Lou, it's all about bowling in partnerships, and I guess that is a result of it. Yeah, exactly. I think I think he's bowled really well. Those two recent tours in subcontinent, um, even though, as you said, he hasn't taken that many wickets. You look back to the 99, and I know you're going to speak to, to our colleague Andrew Ramsey later on about it, so I won't steal his thunder, but that that squad, um, I mean, picking a squad in England, it's almost like the hardest place to pick um, a team or a squad for because, I mean, you play in Australia, you kind of think you load up on fast bowlers, you play in the subcontinent, you can load up on spinners and maybe seam bowling around is a bit more, but England, you could have um, ball swinging around, the ball nipping a bit, you could get really, really flat wickets like Australia had last year over there. Um, so you've got to cover a lot of bases. But that 99 World Cup squad just had the one specialist spinner in Shane Warne. He was, he was pretty good. don't know if you remember him. Yes, but, um, but he, wasn't, he wasn't at the peak of his powers, especially not early on in that tournament. So, Yeah, that's a good point. So it was a bit of a risk, I guess, wasn't it? Kind of just taking the one spinner into that. But um, backing, backing Warne, he was probably always a, a pretty good move. But um, I guess looking at 2003 in South Africa, they did pick two specialist spinners in... Hogg and Shane Warne um, and then Warne got ruled out on the edge of the tournament and Nathan Horowitz came in um, so that's the last time I think, well that's the last time Australia picked two spinners in the squad and won the tournament so um, but I think I think spin just gets bowled more now and um, I think the stats would show that economy wise they're more frugal through the middle overs so I, I yeah I reckon Zampan line have to go England this year. Yeah, and every team wants a, a wrist spinner. I reckon that's been the big change. Is that teams, if they didn't have a genuine spinner, they would just wouldn't wouldn't play them. If there was a finger spinner, it wouldn't matter. But now that every team needs to have a a wrist spinner that is deceptive, that has that googly that's difficult to pick, I, I would be surprised if any of the eleven of the of the ten competing nations don't include a wrist spinner in their eleven. That's what I was getting at. Uh, it would be, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. I reckon they've got to get him in there somewhere. But just the way that, I don't know if 
batting has gotten worse or the the way that um, wrist spinners are bowling has improved. But they just seem to be so effective. You even saw um, New Zealand, they're taking Ish Sodi, they're taking another um, leg spinner over there just to, uh, just to be able to do that. Just to, He's had such a great uh, domestic career. and he's, he, he was fantastic for the Adelaide Strikers in the BBL a couple yep. of years back. I reckon they just every team wants to get a, a wrist spinner in there. So you're right, it is difficult to choose. And I guess the time of year... Uh, when they played that uh, World Cup in 1999 in England, it was right at the start of May and finished mid-June. This one's going to finish about a month later. So what that does to the conditions, the wickets, I mean, there's all this talk about they're going to be dry and worn. I'm not sure they're going to be that worn or dry in a, only a couple of months into the season, but time will tell, I suppose. They're probably due for a... Um, this is getting into kind of meteorological areas, which isn't either of our areas of expertise. But <laughs> Certainly not. Didn't they have a really dry summer last year so wouldn't the odds say that they're due for a wet summer this year that's um maybe that's probably the only solid prediction you can take from me but um the the other thing that's different to 99 was they used the white dukes ball i think um, right for that tournament and now obviously all one day cricket gets played with uh two white kookaburras um so i think like you look at the makeup of that squad they had guys like adam dale in there and um, guys who could swing it around a bit. I'm, I'm not sure um, yeah, Adam Dales of the world or uh, really going to have much success in 2019. So, yeah, that's one key difference. That's an interesting point. I reckon that getting the ball to swing will be a massive a, a, a massive weapon for the, the team that's going to go the furthest in that competition because you think someone like New Zealand, if Bolton mm. Southie swing the ball up front, geez, they could just destroy any team. A bit like Mitchell Stark, he hasn't swung the ball a whole lot in the past couple of years, especially since that 2015 World Cup. But um, if he gets that ball to come back in at the pace that he bowls at, I mean, it's good night. Massively, yeah, massively. And having um, even someone like Hazelwood, he doesn't really swing the ball a whole lot, but um, he is a really good new ball bowler on his day. I reckon Hazelwood's a really interesting one because, you know, you, you kind of heard... Um, there's that kind of school of thought that maybe him missing the World Cup or even Jai Richardson missing the World Cup wouldn't necessarily be that bad a thing given you've got the Ashes right after it. Um, you know, I reckon he could be a, a really um, a really big weapon for Australia this World Cup. Like, he's been such a he's such an accurate bowler and I reckon if you give him a good run at white ball cricket, um, he could even be Australia's death bowler just, um, just in terms of, you know, he's so good at hitting the top of off stump wide... Um, why can't he, you know, be the man to hit the Yorkers at the end? And um, the, you know, I, I said that I left Kane Richardson out of my squad, but I really want to get him in because I think death bowling is going to be really important. You talked about new ball bowling being important, but um, I mean, if the wickets are anything like what they were when Australia went over to the UK last year, um, they were just roads. And finding a way to curtail the team in the last ten overs, I mean, it, even stopping them from. You know, going it over seven or eight and over, that could be that could be a really big win in some of these games. So, um, yeah, Stark Hayes wouldn't come, and if they can um, if they can nail their death bowling, that could go a long way to Australia winning it. That's a great call because Hayeswood is a former world number one one day international bowler, so he's obviously pretty good in the in the fifty over format. And I reckon, yeah, we forget that. I reckon, don't we? Big time, big time, because he's sort of like that metronomical. Red ball fast bowler who's so good at test match cricket. But um, I think in my squad, it was Hayeswood or Kane Richardson. They're the, the, and I've gone with 
Hazel just because of his track record because he is a former world number one bowler and he is so accurate so um, it's tough when you pick someone outside of those those three bowlers and Coulton Isle in my squad is one, is one of those how you squeeze them in if they first of all if they play two spinners you can really only pick two of the quicks and Cummins is mm. going to be one of them isn't he I mean you can't not play him um, so then you've got Stark, Hazelwood and the other quick fighting for that one spot and I mean, I don't know how you leave Mitchell Stark out of a one-day team. So, yeah, it's, it's really tricky. I mean, if, but if they do only play the single spinner, then another bowler comes in. And uh, hey, and Cummins has been so good bowling at the death too. I mean, he's really that bookend yeah. of the innings. He's been so good at the start of the innings, swinging that new ball, getting early wickets. And then he's got a lot of variety. I think that's what you really need a lot. In one-day cricket now, you need guys with a bit like spinners. You need lots of variations and... Um, knuckle balls and off-speed balls and cutters and all those type of things so yeah I mean it's gonna be fascinating how they there is no I don't know what the I don't know if they know the 15 maybe they do the selectors do know the 15 I think they might have already picked it but what the best 11 is that might even be uh, more difficult to pick well yeah even just picking I'm sure all the all the listeners doing it as well like I'm sure they're picking their 15s and their 11s but um, I found it I found it really hard to pick an 11 first and work back from there. But And this would be a really interesting kind of um, question to you know ask the panel, like how did, did they pick an 11 and then pick the four guys to kind of back them up? Or did they kind of pick a squad of 15 and um, I guess put off picking a team from there? Because, I mean, if, if you go all the way, you're playing 11 games, the team you pick at the start might be different to the team you pick at the end and even the makeup of the um, the squad is going to change from game to game. So, um, yeah, interesting uh, approach. Uh, be interesting to know how their approach is and, and I guess what the listeners' approach is as well. And they're not also picking the World Cup squad. They're also picking the Australia A squad, which will travel yeah. over there about a month later. And they've got five 50-over games and then three four-day games to prepare for the Ashes. So I think the, the, the theory is that they've got that, that tour running concurrently from about halfway through the World Cup. So if injury does fall upon one of these players, they'll have um, a ready-made replacement over there already in English conditions. Um, so I guess I guess it's not a, a consolation prize, but if you miss out on the, the World Cup, you get to go to Australia, eh? and then you're sort of the next one in line. But that's got to be fascinating as well because there are so many good players who are just on the periphery of this World Cup squad that are going to miss out, they'll probably go to England and that, on that Oz A tour and guys like, it might be a Jai Richardson who they can monitor the way he comes back uh, and if there is an injury, they can get him back in there or a Kane Richardson or, or a Coulton Isle if he doesn't make it. So, And then you've got to also pick the squad that's got to play those four-day games. So then the the Victorian quicks, I'm sure you know them pretty well, like uh, um, Chris Tremaine and Scott Boland and those guys, they're going to come right into reckoning for that squad as well. So it's um, there's going to be so many Australians over there, Lou, and you're going to be over there for cricket.com reporting it. So um, you're going to be right in the thick of it. Take your spikes. You never know. You never know when they uh, when they might need a net bowler just to uh, serve up some half volleys. So, yeah, I'll, um, I'll pack them, mate, for sure. It's going to be a, a massive, uh, massive off-season of cricket, won't, won't it? It certainly will be. Uh, finally, before we let you go, ASICS has unveiled Australia's World Cup kit. It's a little bit retro. It's still got that nice bright yellow. It's got a 
sort of a lime green shoulder with a lime green V-neck, green side panels, uh, also a little green stripe that runs about halfway down the side of the pants. Uh, not sure what to make of it. A lot of uh, commentary on social media, both positive and negative, as there always seems to be. But Lou, what did you make of it? Um, it's got a shade of green that I haven't seen in a long time. I, I think I like it, but I think it's the kind of one where you really need to see them out there on the field before you can kind yeah. of make a judgment. Um, but that, yeah, that that kind of the green around the collar, and then the. Um, the kind of neck thing, they haven't got the buttons. They mm. kind of got like, I don't know if it's like a mesh that kind of, um, I'm having a look at Glenn Maxwell now and trying to not to be distracted by his chest hair um, or his elbow hair. Um, sorry, arm hair, not elbow hair. Um, but yeah, it's, I like I like the font across the front. I know that's an, I think that's an ICC mandated thing where everyone has the same uh, font with their team yep. name on it. Um, I reckon the jury's out until I see him out there. Agreed. I think you've got to see these things in action before you can really tell. I mean, they look, they look good on mannequins and models like Glenn Maxwell, but here at the moment, what happens when they react to sweat? What happens when they're under lights? I mean, there's just so many different variables. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe we'll win uh, the ODI uh, vote in 20 years' time or whatever it is after um, the 99 World Cup uh, won the vote on cricket.com.au yeah, recently. For to, next um, summer. To be the retro next kit. Summer, yeah. 2019 yeah. retro kit in 2039. Rate it. Yeah, you never know. These things uh, these things grow with time. But there was, I saw someone post this thing on social media with an old, might have been like a World Series kit. Uh, I think it was like Alan Border. Yeah. Um, wearing, a, like it had the exact same kind of shades of green and gold that yep. um, that this new one does. Um, so it kind of looks familiar, but yeah, we definitely haven't seen that green for a really long time. Yeah, I think the World Series one doesn't quite have the shoulders, but um, you never know. Yeah. Someone might predict it. I mean, Bevo probably has done it. I mean, he's talking. He's he's always forward thinking, Michael Bevan. So he's predicted the batters will come in at overs. Now he'll be predicting retro kits. <laughs> Who knows? It'll be for his next book. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not sure how that that book went, but I loved it as a 12 year old, <laughs> Michael Bevan's. Um, I think he might have been mid-career as well, so um, I'll have to see if that one's still on the shelves. He had a scientific mind. He was probably writing the book out there while he was batting, just ticking off run chases, putting chapters together. Yeah, I'd imagine so. I'd imagine so. He had a very analytical mind, but he was ahead of the curve, wasn't he? He certainly was. All right, Lou, we'll let you go, mate. Appreciate your time. Uh, you'll be hearing a lot more and reading and seeing a lot more of Lou uh, on cricket.com.au and the CA Live app over there in England from the World Cup. So if we don't see you or hear you or speak to you or whatever, Lou, between now and then, good luck. Until then, Sam, thank you. I'm Pat Cummins and you're listening to the Unplayable Podcast. Okay, we've looked at the future. Now let's look at the past and revisit the 1999 Cricket World Cup in England where Australia won their second title. Our senior writer, Andrew Ramsey, was over there working for the Australian, covering every ball. Welcome, Rambo. Can you believe it's been 20 years since the 1999 World Cup? Time flies. 20 years? I think I've only just cleaned out my suitcase from that trip and I wondered why some of the things I'd brought back hadn't aged all that well. (laughs) What did you have in there? (laughs) I think it was an old bacon buddy that I found uh, from somewhere. That may have been from the game at uh, Durham, I think. Oh, dear. Well, I'm I'm surprised they got past customs, but uh, throw it out now. It might be a biohazard or something like that. Uh, Rambo, um, cast your mind back. 
if you can, a couple of decades. Uh, we're in the uh, on the eve of Australia launching their World Cup campaign over in England uh, this year. But 20 years ago, what was the lead-up like heading into the 99 World Cup? Um, surprisingly enough, given the tournament that unfolded, it was quite strange. I think they'd, uh, they'd come off a test series in the Caribbean, which they'd ended up um, tying to secure the or keep the Frank Worrell Trophy. Then they went into a seven-match, one-day series against the West Indies that threw up all sorts of curious events. And uh, there may be a story coming on cricket.com.au sometime soon about this. But uh, a couple of riots that they went through. Um, Team wasn't going all that well. There was unrest amongst players, certainly fiction between the captain and the vice-captain, Stephen Waugh and Shane Warne. Um, Players that weren't performing particularly well, and they got to the end of that seven match series which ended up being tied three all and uh, they weren't in great shape when they boarded the plane for London and it was uh, I remember arriving into Gatwick Airport on a Sunday morning in early May and it was freezing it was may as well have arrived in the middle of December right uh, I guess it shows, shows um, the contrasting let-ups this time because if you wind the clock back even a couple of months, Australia's one-day team would have been in somewhat of a similar situation, not having uh, won a series for a couple of years, and they won four out of 24 one-dayers. But in the space of, what was it, like six or so weeks, um, they beat India away, they beat Pakistan 5-0 away, they've got an eight-match winning streak under their belts, and they're going to welcome back at least two uh, band players. They're going to welcome back two band players and then probably a couple of other fast bowlers. So... Uh, but if we uh, if we look at it like this, um, Australia should be morals for the World Cup this year. <laughs> well, there's certainly enough similarities there, and I, I think the one thing you do glean from watching these campaigns unfold is you, you really don't want to be playing your best cricket you know, six or eight months before you get to the World Cup if you're going to be tinkering and you've got players that are being eased back into the setup. Um, you want to be peaking, if not at the very start of the World Cup, then certainly when you get to the the middle rounds and then the pointy end of the tournament. So. Um, you have to say that Australia's warm-up has been a complete contrast to that of England, who've been flying for the last 18 months in one-day cricket, but maybe they've timed their run nicely with a, a succession of wins and, as you say, some pretty handy players to come back in. Absolutely. Uh, what about the, the World Cup squad back then, Rambo Australia? I think the selectors might have picked uh, the side yesterday on Tuesday. Uh, we're not sure that that release is going to be coming out soon, I guess, but... Uh, Back then in 1999, what were the contentious spots in that 15-man group heading into the World Cup? Um, it was a bit of a, a time of friction because uh, the only recent, it's only been a year or two previously that they'd made this decision to split the, the one-day team and the test team. In the, in the, up until about 1997, they'd just picked a, basically the test team to play one-day cricket. Um, so they'd suddenly decided they'd go the way of a few white ball specialist so there was an obsession with trying to find all-rounders Shane Lee was uh, earmarked for big things in England um, they'd lost Jason Gillespie through injury in the West Indies so they were down a couple of fast bowlers um, but the, the sort of the similarity to now is that there was debate from uh, Stephen War as to who he wanted to take to England the selectors had some views Stephen had another and he was very keen on taking Tom Moody um, as a you know, hard-hitting top-order batsman who could always a few handy overs of seam-up stuff in English conditions and had played a lot of county cricket, so Stephen thought he'd be invaluable not only as a, an experienced head on the field in England but as a, a bit of a shop steward for him in amongst the team group. Tom was a pretty level-headed and authoritative figure in Australian cricket, so 
even though his form leading into the World Cup, certainly in that Caribbean series, wasn't great. Um, Stephen thought that he was the, the man for the job. I think he missed out on the starting 11 for the first couple of games, but uh, came in and was actually pretty influential as the tournament went on. So that was probably the big talking point selection-wise heading into the tournament. The Aussies didn't start off too well in that 99 World Cup, did they? Rambo, uh, not the best start, which left um, them really no choice but to win out or go home. Uh, yes, they'd uh, brought in some you know, inexperienced players. They'd Adam Gilchrist at the top of the order was a bit of an unknown factor. He'd made a couple of scores, but his ability against the singing, swinging, seeming ball in England was unknown, and he got sort of found out in the early stages of that tournament. So they limped through their opening game against Scotland at Worcester and the captain came out after that game and basically gave the team both barrels to criticise their fielding, criticised their uh, application, criticised all sorts of things, which was an unusual start uh, when the captain's firing shots at his own team. Then they went to Cardiff and got belted all around the park by Chris Cairns and New Zealand beat them. And then they went to Headingley and lost to Pakistan fairly convincingly. And I can still remember Stephen Waugh standing with a few of us Frostbitten journalists in the uh, the dark bowels of the stadium at Headingley and saying, well, it's pretty simple. We just have to win our next seven games and uh, we can win the World Cup. And we all stifled a bit of a laugh at that point. We went off and filed our stories about how the Cup campaign was pretty much off the rails and we were going home early. And uh, as ever, we've been proved spot on. <laughs> what was the... Um... What wasn't what wasn't clicking for the Aussies? You look at that team, and you just and you look back now, and you just go, you've got Gilchrist, War Brothers, uh, Ponting, Warren, McGrath. I mean, these are some of the all-time greats, if not the greats, of Australian cricket. Um, you think they can't lose a game, but what wasn't clicking for them in those early stages? Um, I think they struggled. Well, their bowling was a bit impotent to start with. Uh, Stephen Moore had this idea that he based this on what the South Africans were doing was that. He'd keep McGrath up his sleeve. He caught new ball in England, um, would swing around a bit, so he'd open the bowling with Damien Fleming and Adam Dale, who was a bit of a, a nibbler in those conditions, um, then bring McGrath on when the ball was a bit older, and hopefully they've taken a couple of wickets earlier than McGrath can sort of side through the middle order, but that just didn't work. Um, so they had to change those plans and then throw the new ball to McGrath after the first few games. Um, like I say, Gilchrist was not... Um, hadn't really come to grips with the conditions early on so he didn't produce one of those big innings that he did in other World Cups um, the middle order was a bit soft you know, Tom Moody and those guys who hadn't played a lot of cricket, Stephen Waugh himself was in a bit of a form slump in the early stages of that tournament and Shane Warne had, so was only recently back from a shoulder reconstruction operation, he'd lost his place in the test team a few months earlier so he wasn't bowling as well as he could but he was just slowly making his way back into form in one-day cricket. So it wasn't until those bits of the puzzle all sort of clicked into place, and it was just really on the basis of one game against Bangladesh up in Chesterler Street where they knew they had to get their run rate up, so they went out and just threw themselves at the bowling earlier on and um, chased down a, a total in very short time, and that seemed to turn the whole campaign around. Right, well, they uh, entered the Super 6 stage, no points having lost their games. It's very... 
very uh, difficult to explain this whole the old World Cup formats with super sixes, group stages, semi-finals and finals. Much more easier this time. You just play everyone once, and then it's the semis and the finals. But uh, but back then, um, lots of different ways um, that the the super sixes and the semi-finalists and finalists were decided. But uh, I guess it all came back down to those last three games, uh, which will be remembered in Australian cricket history for a long time, starting with that last super six game which Australia had to win, and uh, Steve Wall pulls out a century, overcomes that form slump, as you mentioned, Rambo, and uh, legend will have it that he uttered those famous lines, uh, that famous line, uh, you've just dropped the World Cup to Herschel Gibbs when he spilled him at mid-wicket. Now, you were there, Rambo, and you've probably had this question asked you a lot and covered it a lot, but uh, did Steve Wall really say that? Um, He was always a bit of a stickler for being misquoted, Stephen. Um, Never... He'd let you know if you'd got something wrong. Um, he never actually corrected that, so I'm, I think he's happy for that to stand on the record, but um, my understanding is no, he didn't say that at all. It was something like, that's going to cost you today. Or uh, He was very combative when he went out to bat in that innings. He sort of came out of the tunnel and started going at the South Africans straight away. I think he, he thought they were you know, trying to put them on the back, feet, back foot, even though they were clearly on top in the game at that stage. Um, so... He wanted to have a chip at all of them. So when Herschel Gibbs dropped that catch, I think he said something like, yeah, that's going to cost you, or I'm going to go on and make a big score. Or, um, but then folklore turned it into, you've just dropped the World Cup, and I think he's reasonably happy to let that one slide. He'll point it out that it wasn't exactly right if you ask him, but uh, otherwise he'll keep fairly stum on that. Yeah, you don't want to change it. It's a great line, do you? No, he does look a little bit cocky, and if he'd got out you know, three balls later, he would have looked like a bit of a goose. But uh, as the story wound on, the quote became more and more sort of emblematic of the whole campaign, so I think we just let it stand. Now, semi-final Rambo, considered by some, probably no South Africans, as the best ODI of all time, uh, was where Shane Warne dragged Australia back into the match for the final over of madness that resulted in a tie. Uh, I actually remember speaking to my dad the, the following day. I wasn't allowed to stay up and watch it, and I said, who won? And he told me the situation that it was a tie and he also said he dragged about five cigarettes in the final over he was that nervous um but can you he explain he was a non-smoker until then too know, that's right it was his first five he had heads been for about a week after that um can you explain what it was like trying to file being a reporter in that situation trying to file a match report um it was actually pretty straightforward because it happened so late in the morning or as early in the morning in australia that all the newspapers had gone to print so we basically had nothing to do other than sit there and watch. We'd filed, in those days, you'd file a sort of change of innings, so you just had to, the newspaper would come out in the morning without the result, uh, and everyone knew what had happened, so it was sort of a bit of a pointless exercise in some ways. But, um, so we were just sitting back watching it, and I was uh, talking to my old mate Robert Crash Craddock at the time. We were just musing about what we'd do for the final few days because Australia clearly weren't going to make the playoff. They were dead to rights. Um, until that last over, and then even then you thought when Lance Cruzan hit the first couple of balls before, we started packing up, thinking, oh, well, this is the campaign done. Um, but never underestimate South Africa's ability to lose the plot when it really matters. Um, how they didn't get that final run is beyond me. Um, and even the fact that everyone knew that a tied result would be enough to get Australia through simply because... They'd beaten South Africa in the Super 6 game a few days earlier, uh, the game we alluded to a short time ago. So uh, people, came, well, people think that Australia won that game, but uh, it ended up being a tie. 
and the whole world just kind of changed in the space of a ball. It was the end of a perfect storm, really, because they looked like they were out of the tournament. They'd come good, so people back in Australia started to tune in at night and watch a few games, and then it was the, the heading league game where Stephen Wall made that 100 and got them over the line. So there was huge interest in that semi-final, playing the same opponent again a few days later, and then producing the finish that it did meant that people stayed up until... At two, three in the morning, like your dad, who's now developed a smoking addiction because of it. Um, so there was just massive interest by the time the final came around. So it really was a kind of cricket promoter's dream by that stage, unless you were South African. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I guess it all started, the comeback started because well, they were chasing 2.15 or so. Uh, South Africa made a flying start at none for 48 from memory. Uh, and then Warney comes on. And takes two and over with two brilliant deliveries. And I think the third one, Cronje, might have hit his toe and gone to first slip. But it's out in the record books, but uh, you wouldn't have known it. But he was fairly low on confidence, wasn't he, Rambo? He was up until that point. He was. He just felt that he was starting to get good at what come good. Um, he was racked by self-doubt. There was even times early in the tournament where he was stopping you know, journalists outside hotels and asking them how they thought he'd bowled and you know, trying to say that he's a lot on his mind and things aren't, you know, he, he feels like they're starting to come out well and it was almost like he was trying to convince himself by talking to people who were a bit peripheral to the whole setup. But um, it was, I think I remember too that it was, it would be played at a very similar time to the current, the coming World Cup, but it was May and early June in England is not great spin bowling weather. I mean, the pitches are still fairly damp and green and the weather's cold and the balls gets a bit slippery because there's a bit of residual moisture on the ground. So, when the day started to get a bit longer and the weather warmed up a bit, he came into his own and suddenly he was back to believing that he could do it. And I think the footage of that South African innings at um, Edgbaston where he took those first couple of wickets, he almost had to be placed into sort of secure care. He was that pumped up and the yeah. rest of the team tried to get around him and he was just uh, looking like he was in some sort of WWE wrestling frenzy. It was uh, quite extraordinary stuff. He was a man possessed and uh, he followed it up with another four wickets in the final um, did you just think at that point Rambo that Australia just had so much momentum that even Pakistan who were the form team of the tournament they couldn't uh, they couldn't halt them at that stage yeah there seemed to be this great sense of belief that had developed because they like we said they, were, they looked like they were out of the tournament you know, a month and a half earlier so to even got to that point was um, a remarkable achievement so they just kind of thought everything was falling in their favour and they, they had a view going into the final that Pakistan were a bit mercurial. They'd played some extraordinary cricket throughout the tournament, but they'd also, I think they'd lost to um, Bangladesh or someone. I can't remember who it was, but there was a game that was clearly showed they could uh, bottom out in a short space of time. So they came up with all these theories about how they would attack them and if Pakistan were batting, that they would deliberately hurl the ball in at the keeper at 100 miles an hour every chance they got just to keep the Pakistani batters on their toes and let them know that they were under siege, not just from the bowlers but from the fielders as well, so you kind of, if you look back at that game it, the pressure just seemed to get to them, they, they batted first and their top order wobbled a bit and then they just imploded, they couldn't find a way, they got completely bamboozled by Warren, um, every catch that came along stuck um, you know, Mark War and Ricky Ponting took a couple of screams in the slips and Stephen Moore kept the field up and kept the pressure on, so they just suffocated them, basically, and then if any way they were going to lose that was if they had a similar top order collapse themselves. And for the first time in the tournament, the, the Gilchrist method paid off. We just came out and 
pogoed them over the infield and you know, Wasi Macram and co had no answer and it was pretty much a done deal by mid-afternoon. And there you go. They've been, that sparked a, uh, the first of three consecutive World Cups. I think the uh, that one, they had to really dig deep to win and then they had their close calls in 2003, but by 2007, I mean, they'd sort of mastered the one-day format and blitzed everyone in that in that um, campaign in the Caribbean. Uh, just goes to show you, I mean, it could have been so much different if they hadn't have got over the line there in 1999. But from then on, they were the dominant force in world cricket, in one-day cricket in particular, for the best part of, of a decade. Well, yes, they was Harking back to that conversation we had with Stephen Moore and Heading, where he said we just have to win the next seven games. Uh, I don't think they lost a World Cup game for the next eight years. <laughs> yeah. from, if you include the tie. And if he'd come out and said that, then we would have known that he was mad. Yeah. But, yep. uh, the fact that you can then go through two entire tournaments um, and not lose a game is, is quite extraordinary. Uh, and they just, the group of players that they had uh, for that period they just kept they'd lose a player through retirement or whatever and they just replace him with someone who was equally good or would in the case of like Andrew Simons in South Africa prove themselves to be possibly better so they just kept going from strength to strength and I think it was uh, by the end there are other teams are looking at it saying I don't know how we're ever going to beat these guys the thing that kind of gets underplayed and all this is just an understanding of tournament play like it is different from any other limits over stuff that you you play that you're trying to get through the first rounds and with a obviously room to improve and not tinkering with your structure too much, but certainly finding your way into the tournament. But then when it get, you get to the sudden death stage, which is where teams like England and South Africa have struggled over the years, um, you just have to know your game and have that belief within the group that no matter what position you find yourself in, you can find a way out of it. So you need the guys who are sort of lower middle order to have had a few hits during the tournament to be finding their feet. You don't want to be going through each game winning with eight wickets in hand because suddenly you know, you'll get to the pointy end and there are blokes who haven't played much cricket. So um, tournament play is a bit of an art in itself and they seem to find a way of doing that pretty well. Now you spoke to Steve Waugh a lot during that tournament but you also spoke to him fairly recently uh, and he said that the 1999 World Cup uh, is the best of the lot out of all the uh, editions of the World Cup. Uh, uh, not because Australia won it or he was the captain of the winning team, but for uh, for another reason, because of the, the balance between bat and ball in those English conditions. Uh, yeah, and it was... I, I, you look at England last summer, it was you know, record hot weather and I'm not getting into the climate change debate with you, Samuel. Um, <laughs> but certainly 20 years ago, it was, it was grey and it was cold and it was low cloud for a lot of those games. There were a couple of games on those small county grounds that produced huge scores. I think India made almost 400, which would have been the first time that had been done. Um, I think that may have been at Taunton or something like that. But um, pretty much ball-dominated bat for a lot of it. And it, that's why New Zealand did so well up there. They had you know, Shane O'Connor and Chris Cairns, those guys that could swing the ball around. So um, whether that's be replicated in... The UK this year, if it's a similar starting time, late May, goes through until mid-July. I think the 99 World Cup was over by mid-June, so they played it at the very start of English summer or the end of their spring. Um, but it certainly brought different players into the game. Um, and a, you know, a guy like Lance Klusner, who could hit the ball hard, the bowl, you know, a few overs of seam up that just nibbled around a bit, were pretty difficult to deal with. So 
in the end, that comes down to selection, I guess, too, doesn't it? You pick the right players for the right conditions. It's all about adapting, Rambo, and uh, you would know, having covered the game for, as has been revealed, uh, at least 20 years, um, how much has the one-day game changed? Oh, hugely. They, as I said at the start, yeah, they, Australia only just realised that the best way to pick your one-day team is to pick your best one-day cricketers as opposed to the best test players and expect them to perform that role. So you know, the scores of 220, 250 were pretty much par in those days. Um, and any team, you'd have a, you know, guys that could bat through. That's why Michael Bevan was so valuable because he could, if he lost early wickets, he could hang around and just knock the ball into the gaps or he could come in the last 10 overs and do the same thing and put the sort of icing on the top. But it was pretty rare that you'd see a team make 300 or more. And if they did, that was considered a, an unassailable score. Um, so the changes that uh, the pictures have changed a lot. But they're just flat batting tracks. Um, no score is now beyond uh, the scope of a team chasing, I wouldn't have thought. Um, bats are so much different and a lot of those England grounds are quite small. Um, so you could imagine huge scores being posted in some of these games coming up. Um, and just the, the ability of batters to score all parts of the ground, it's now impossible to set a field, uh, even though the fielding restrictions have been relaxed a bit of late. Um, just the fact that they can play all these shots into the spots where there's gaps and back themselves to clear the fence so often. Um, I think that's the 2020 influence, but it's a... It's almost unrecognisable game to what it was 20 years ago. Maybe that's because my eyesight's failing. Perhaps, perhaps. It certainly is a different beast, Rambo. Thank you very much for your time. You're going to be over there for the World Cup, but you're going to be there for the Ashes, so you can get all the World Cup hangover and deal with all that. Yes, yes. Uh, one way or another, there'll be a party going on in England, I would have thought, by the, by the time I get there. Um, and I'll just make sure that I clean out the suitcase before I go, because I won't be getting past the Beagles if I don't get rid of that bacon buddy. That's a very good shout. Thank you, mate. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Samuel. We finished today's program with some fan reviews. Remember, you can rate, review, and subscribe to the Unplayable Podcast on iTunes and catch it on Spotify. First one we have from Tankwee, which uh, Tankwee says, More Stoiner's Amps. Can't get enough of the Zoinus combination. Wouldn't even be a bad shout to get Richo involved with them too. Loving it, guys. So uh, the Zoinus combo of Marcus Zoinus and Adam Zampa, fantastic. They were great over there in India. And Kane Richardson did a great job as well. Uh, hope you're listening, Kane. Sorry again about not including you in the World Cup squad. Uh, the next one I've got from Rob and Will. Robin Will, my son and I are really loving this inside look into the current Aussie cricket team who are smashing it at the moment. Uh, couldn't have come at a better time after a tough summer. Very entertaining and the Zoinus combination is pure gold. Keep up the good work and we can't wait to hear the next instalment. Just one small request. Please speak up, fellas, because we aren't all fluent in mumble. Robin Will, thank you very much for that. Apologies for the mumbling. It's been a condition I've had for many years. I'm working on it. Hopefully, it sounds a little bit better this episode. And finally, uh, Jeff Riley. Jeffy has said, great coverage of Oz Cricket. Thank you so much. All these positive reviews. So much. It's a nice change from uh, Cabocurl's skating review a couple of weeks ago. But uh, remember, if you want to put a, leave a review or give us a rating or subscribe, you can do that all 
on iTunes uh, or send us a tweet using the hashtag unplayablepodcast. That is it for this week's episode. There is a very, very strong chance we'll be back next week to recap Australia's World Cup squad and the Australia Raid team and everything that goes with it. Probably just a little quick one, but if you don't hear from us, we'll be back ahead of the World Cup. Until then, for all your cricket news, scores and video, head to cricket.com.au and the CA Live app. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.